0: bank talk features thought leadership interviews with community banking and credit union executives on
1: relevant banking topics if you are that ceo or would like to be an executive one day this is the podcast for you the most downloaded podcast in the community banking space, Bank Talk promises that you will learn something new in each episode to improve the performance at your financial institution. And now, here's our host, Charlie Kelly. Hi, and welcome to Bank Talk. I'm Charlie Kelly, your host and partner at Remedy Consulting. Today we're talking about five trends we've seen over the last year that core vendors and other large technology vendors are using when dealing with banks and credit unions. I've asked Brian Hink, who heads up our contract negotiation practice at Remedy, to join us today. We're going to walk through a few topics. This probably won't be a longer podcast, should be a shorter one, but we're going to talk through these topics because we've been seeing them. We want, you know, our clients and our listeners to sort of be aware of them. If you're in the place where you might be negotiating your contract, you know, if you're not using somebody that's does quite a few of these, and you're going to try to do it yourself, these are some things you might want to be ready for. Without further ado, we'll get to Brian Hink at uh, Remedy Consulting. So I have with me uh, Brian Hink from Remedy. Brian, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: I appreciate the fact that this is you know we're getting near an end of a quarter here always end of quarters are busy as we've probably talked about before in these podcasts. Everybody starts getting jumpy on the on the contract negotiation side and it seems like the workload really picks up either at the end of the quarter or end of the year. So appreciate you just taking a few minutes to talk through a couple of topics. So Brian, um, we well we prep for this a little bit, but in general, what I wanted to talk about is some of the trends that your team is seeing related to contracts. I picked out a few, you added a couple and we ended up with 5 so we're going to go through 5 items here i wanted to start with and some of this is trendy you know i don't know if there's such a thing as trendy in contracts because you know contracts are meant to be long term but some of this is trendy from the perspective of i think that some of these are being added into contracts added into negotiation tactics some of these items and what we're seeing on the back end is the vendors tend to now execute on this, this language and execute on some of these tactics a little bit more than we've seen in the past. Okay, so Brian, I think one of the topics that really comes to mind that I think seems to have a lot of interest out there is whether or not when a contract comes around, you've got a current contract that you're in the middle of, and it's time to renew your new contract. So you've gotten through your pricing, you've gotten through all those pieces, and now you're at a place where it's time to put some paper on, you know, trying to put some paper around what you've agreed to. That time comes and the discussion kind of goes to, do you want me to amend the old contract or should we start out with new paper and completely redo everything that we've done? So can you give me just a couple of puts and takes on either one of those options? You know, What do the vendors prefer to do? And what is your preference as you as you speak to clients about how to get something like that done? When we talk about an, a contract that's been amended multiple times, give us that scenario, just the way you think about that.
0: Sure. So, you know, we've had, you know, a variety of clients. They went through the process of renewing their contract. They got a new master, but then throughout that contract, they've either added a variety of projects or products a, a few times throughout that contract term. And with every new products being added, there's an amendment that comes along with that, a contract amendment. So they could have just a variety of amendments that they are working through throughout that contract term. And then when you renew, the time comes to renew their contract again, and that renewal would just be another amendment. But then the amendment itself, it may not have a lot of detail in it because that detail would refer back to the original master.
1: So it might be something like, pricing change, or just change a change term, but a very simple, let's push everything we did before forward. Push it, it could forward. be that simple, right? Is that is that a fair statement?
0: Yes, that is a fair statement. From a strategy standpoint, doing an amendment as opposed to rewriting the master, that would probably be dependent on what your current terms are. If your terms are very favorable, doing an amendment would probably be easier and it wouldn't be as neat and tidy. But it could be the easiest way to keep pushing your favorable terms forward, as opposed to, again, the neat and tidy way would be to rewrite, you know, write a new master. But then the work that uh, you have in front of you is trying to get the existing terms put into that new master.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And I would probably say that when you talk about the terms that you want to roll forward, right, we've always had this conversation around the fact that the paper is written by the vendor for the vendor. So when you start thinking about specialized language, that helps you, right? You want to make sure it rolls forward. So you've got to really think about ahead of time, how hard is it to read that contract plus a whole bunch of old amendments, including products added, products subtracted, versus something nice and clean where you might lose some things that you were thinking about five years ago or 10 years ago whenever you did the original. I mean, that's the way I think about it. Is that fair? or Are there other things to think about there? No, that's... That's exactly
0: right. It's almost like if you have a folder, a file folder with your contract and amendments, I would almost recommend to put the amendments that are just like new product additions that don't necessarily have terms. You kind of, you put those in one folder and you put the the other ones that have, you know, term changes or terms and condition related changes in a different folder. So when you're looking for some of those important items, you can uh, access them quicker. And just so that
1: the audience understands the breadth of this, I'm going to give kind of a worst case scenario. Uh, we've got one client; they had 98 product type amendments and three different master changes, and a bunch of other amendments that were just language changes to try to roll into a new master. Right? The the reason they wanted to roll into new masters, they couldn't. They didn't know what they were reading anymore after that many changes. But. The experience of going through that new master has been extremely painful for them as well. So, it, you know what I mean. It gets it gets very complicated when you're a hundred plus pages of contract to try to get that
0: get that ironed out so you know exactly what you're up against. As you know, those contracts are very lengthy, and to sift through the hundreds of pages for like one particular term or condition of the contract can be quite challenging.
1: Because you're trying to figure out what superseded what, which which amendment superseded the last one, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Stuff. Okay. So, so Brian, we had a pre-discussion on whether a vendor would prefer uh, an amendment versus redoing the master, and you had a you had a pretty interesting insight there. Could you could you hit us with that again?
0: Yeah, some of the smaller vendors don't actually have a legal team that work on their own contracts. They actually. Have a you know a third party law firm that's on retainer to you know amend and write their contracts, so in some cases in in a lot of the cases you know they're looking at man hours, so they're more apt to do a quick amendment in a renewal situation rather than kind of recreating the wheel or or you know rewriting a fresh contract. they're trying to reduce the number of iterations,
1: yeah, um, they don't want to pay four bucks an hour any more than the client does I suppose right yes, exactly. No, so that's a good point. I wanted to make sure we spent a few seconds on that in the podcast, because that may be your motivation as well, right? As a person looking over a contract, you got to remember the larger core vendors, they have attorneys on retainer, right? Or they've got attorneys that are on staff, right. where you probably, you know, would need somebody legal to spend a little bit of time around this thing. And uh, anybody who's been through that, Knows it's an experience because it's you know finding a contract attorney is not always the easiest thing in the world either. So one that you know one that can quickly get to the the meat of the hundred pages of contract that you're staring at um, is not always a pleasant experience either. So to me, I just think it's an interesting dynamic, right? Sometimes it comes down to who wants to pay the lawyer the least. You know yeah. I mean? <laughs> that's, that's how you solve that problem. It's, it's reality. That's the way this stuff goes. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's jump to, second, to my second topic, because it's pretty closely related to this. The, another trend that you were telling me about is just this concept of expiring contract language. So going back to the scenario we talked about, you've got a contract that's in place, and in that contract, you've clawed out some things that are important to you. So let's call that contract a, a seven-year contract, and it ran from six years ago, and you, know, you got one year left, right? Now it's time to re-up. And buried in that contract is some language that might expire some of your special clauses. Is that becoming commonplace these days? Give me just your two cents on on this concept of, you know, look out for that six-point font buried in the contract that you might not know. That, about.
0: that happens quite a bit. This year, there's been quite a bit of that. And I think what's happening is as they continue to rewrite these contracts or update amendments and, and whatnot. They're trying to claw back some of the terms and conditions that they may have given back over the years. So their new standard language may have changed over time. They're trying to get those terms into the contract as opposed to the favorable client bank contract language.
1: To me, I, I kind of think about it as sort of uh, an auto refresh of their own contract. There's that dangerous term in any contract that says then current rates, right? Right. Well, this is sort of, you know, then current terms and conditions. (laughs) And unfortunately, it's not always easy to find in a a 100 or 200 pages worth of contract. It's not always easy to find all those places that they might hide that. But it's important because if some important language that you have expires only because you renewed, put an amendment on a contract that you thought was pretty good, if they've got expiring language in there, then the amendment actually might be doing you a disfavor. Right. Right. You might be better off than saying, Hey, I will take a new master and I hope I can go find all the special language I stuck in there that's in my favor. Yeah. I know, I'd have to go reread the old one and dump it back in there. But I just wanted our listeners to kind of be aware of the fact that, you know, that's another something that I think the vendors have learned over time that's now beginning to rear its ugly head because it's brilliant to fear the vendor. It's not always brilliant to fear the client. Exactly. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate your couple minutes on that. So we're into item number three. We had talked about when you look at a proposal, so a vendors put a proposal in front of you, and this could be whether you're you know, changing a service or whether you are just renewing a current contract. This concept of volumes changing and a vendor being able to use a volume change to their benefit, I think it's just an interesting dynamic. And, and uh, oddly, it seems to catch a lot of our clients off guard. So I just want to spend a couple minutes around it. So Would you mind giving us just a quick use case on how volume change might make a vendor proposal look better, you know, month over month?
0: That happens to us all the time. When we uh, get our initial proposal from the vendor, you know, you could look at one of the line items, like if it's a base processing fee and they have a certain number of accounts that are listed. Say it's 100 account at a dollar. So it comes out to hundred dollars. But then the next proposal we get from them, you know, they shift the volumes, the volume changes. And on the summary of the proposal, it may appear as though the cost for that item went down. But it becomes very important to pay attention to the unit rates and say focus on the unit rates to make sure that you're actually getting savings when you're requesting a specific price.
1: The scenario I would think about there is volumes are going to be changing on a regular basis, right? The example I think you're using is if you have 100 accounts and then all of a sudden your annual purge goes through. And now for whatever reason, you're down to 90 accounts. Well, it takes time to do these, right? You go through proposals and it takes time to negotiate a contract. It might take multiple months, which means you're going to have multiple proposals generally from the vendor over that time. And a lot of times we're seeing their model show a lower dollar total, but they're taking advantage in that scenario I just gave you of a purge. The purge went away, and they're showing that as some kind of a decrease in their overall proposal. In reality, the dollar amount they're paying per unit might be the same or might have even grown. They could, you know, arguably even bump it up. They usually don't. But if you're not paying attention to that, it'll look like we're saving you X. Well, if X, if a volume drop is part of that equation, then you really haven't
0: helped yourself down the
1: road. Yeah,
0: no doubt. I mean, some of these invoices are just as convoluted as the contract themselves. So you really do have to pay very close attention to all the moving parts and make sure they're moving in your favor and not in theirs.
1: And you could do that. You know, you could build your own model, you know, if you want to do 500 line items. You know, a lot of times just that little bit of movement makes a big difference. When you can see the detail, you can understand the tactic, I guess is probably the way I'd put that. We just really have a couple of more items to talk about. I want to talk about the CPI. So every contract has a CPI clause. And given the inflation and things that are going on, I just wanted to kind of get your opinion around what's happening with those clauses. Because the clauses last five years, right? If inflation is transitory, even though I think even the economists have given up on that term (laughs) these days, if there's any transitory about it, then a regular CPI that goes out for a seven-year contract it's something to keep an eye on. Kind of, what are you seeing in the CPI clauses? Are the vendors fighting fighting them harder? What are you seeing them land on? Yeah, just give us your thoughts on where CPI is going these
0: days. Yeah, they are definitely fighting them harder. They're looking to make sure that they get a reasonable rate. I think in anyone else's eyes, it's it's highway robbery. But when CPI was lower, you know, one two percent, they were content with um, actual CPI. You know, in a lot of contracts, they were trying to set a minimum out there if they could get away with it now they're looking to get closer to actual cpi they have backed off of that a little bit and they're okay with caps but the caps are still elevated much further than uh, where we were you know not long ago at one two percent range they do stand pretty firm on those caps again they they, sometimes they try to get minimums in there and it all depends on the vendor where they set that number some are at five percent some are at seven percent
1: two years ago I would argue that most of the vendors weren't even paying attention to it because it had been so low for so long. Exactly. It wasn't even a contract term that people were fighting all that much because everybody thought,
0: ah, this will be, you know, we'll never have inflation. (laughs) Yeah, now it's much higher. But again, at the same time, you kind of try to argue the point of just because there's inflation, how does that really impact their bottom line? Does it really impact it to the tune of 7%? I would beg to differ.
1: Yeah, I just want to bring that up because at one point it was, you know, not even part of the of the conversation. And now it seems like it's actually, you know, front and center to some degree. Everybody's got it. And and again, a uh, long-term CPI, whether you call that a minimum or a standard CPI, right? It's going to hurt you for a few years. And then it's a bigger money decision when you look at the compounding over seven years is all I'll say. Quite significant. So last item, to me, it seems like there is a bit of an extension in how long it takes to get a proposal out of folks. By folks, I mean any vendor anywhere. And I guess I'd like your thoughts on it because maybe it's not as universal as I'm making it sound. You know, again, I kind of keep an eye on our pipeline and the pipeline seems to be taking a lot longer to get through. Pipeline being, you know, work work in progress, negotiations we're doing as part of our overall group, right? So I look at that and I say, why is this taking so long? And by and far, the answer seems to be it's taking me two months to get a proposal, it's taking me two months to get a contract. Every request is taking longer. I'm sure that I'm over, overblowing that, but give me your opinion on what's occurring there. And, you know, does that change how you think about, you know, how early people
0: should get started on these things? It has come up a lot more lately. I would say in the last eight months or so, eight to 10 months, it seems to be taking quite a bit longer. And I've heard a variety of different reasons for it, you know, depending on the vendor. Some say there's hiring issues. Some say whatever they have, turnover, and they're, you know, they're bringing, ramping people up, bringing them up to speed on it. In the back of my mind, I always have this thought that if you are going to a vendor early and you're looking for discounts, they're not really motivated to get those discounts pushed through quicker for you. So that could have something to do with it too. Maybe they're slow playing it, But for the most part, I think, you know, to answer your question about timing, you know, we would always say about 24 months, you know, maybe even inside of 24 months to get started on it. Now, I would argue you might want to get going when you have about 30 months left just to make up for some of the time that it takes them to turn things around. That's interesting. And then we had this other side discussion, you
1: and I, that I thought might be interested in the podcast is we've heard. Some consultants going out there four years early, they've taken it to an extreme, which is, you know, and I don't know if this is just a sales scenario or what, but you know, they're going out there very, very early. And what their pitch seems to be, hey, we want to get way in front of this because it's going to take so long. And I think that as I saw that at a vendor, right, back in the days, I don't know that I would agree that going out there that early is really beneficial. And here's why, Right. In, in every contract, you know, as an account, we talk to the CFO of the vendor. If they're dealing with a previous contract, there's a certain amount of that contract. If they had to discount it the last time, there's a certain amount of that contract that they think is sort of an amortizable reduction that they've given. In other words, they've got a number on their books that they're saying, "I'm going to amortize these credits. I'm going to amortize things that I've given you in the previous contract." You're no longer at MSRP. You're at a reduced rate. So if you're going out there four years ahead of a contract, you may be doing yourself a disservice. In other words, they're sitting there thinking, hey, I got this big number on the books from the last time you did this to me. You may actually be doing yourself a disservice by going too early. But I just wanted to make sure you and I spent a few minutes around this because I, you know the trend of it taking them longer is certainly out there. and Whether that's by design on their side, to me, it feels like it, it probably stretched our timelines six months. It certainly didn't stretch them 18 months right? (laughs) I still don't recommend you go out there that early because I think the argument would be if they come to you and say, well, you're coming awful early, you have the argument around, well, I know because we're anticipating it's going to take a lot longer on your end. That's what we've been hearing in the market, right? We've been hearing that it's, you know, everything takes a month or, you know, 45 days to answer uh, because you got to either get it through your committee or or there's nobody over there on your side. The timelines are being stretched. I, I think, you know, if you Walk around and ask a handful of consultants uh, that all work at different firms; they'd probably all agree that it seems like it's everything's taken a little bit longer. I would say it's just you know an important trend we should be talking about as we you know for, as part of this podcast. Is
0: there anything else we missed there, Ryan? You know what's interesting about the timelines too is if it's a, a previous client where you saved a significant level of money. Your strategy may change a little bit in the next time you work on their renewal. But at the same time, I don't think the timing changes. I think the timing stays about the same. You may be a little bit, right, because the vendor is moving slow. So between the 24 and 30-month time frame, you would still proceed business as usual. Again, the strategy and the approach might be a little bit different.
1: Like I said, you know, to the point of what they anticipate is being amortized off their books, right? There's just so many scenarios I can think of. That require a credit these days on these contracts, right? Whether that's the old negotiation, whether that's some big implementation project where they had to credit you something for professional services. There's just multiple scenarios where there might be a sort of a credit sitting there that they're amortizing off on their books. And so, you know, that concept of there's that weird balance between am I too early or am I in the right stage to be able to both negotiate and, you know, make sure they don't have some credit on their books. Well, thank you, Brian. I know again, appreciate. This is a busy time of year for you guys. Appreciate you joining us. Is there anything else we missed or anything else we want to talk about before we before we close out the bank talk podcast? I think that covers this segment. Yeah, I think when we were talking about it, right, we both said there's probably 50 things we could talk about. Yeah, <laughs> These are the ones that we're seeing that maybe we hadn't seen 18 months ago, or the ones that I think are probably uh, causing a lot more conversation than maybe we had seen 18 months ago. So you know, in, in light of just making sure that our, our listeners are aware of just, you know, tactics that are being used, I just thought it was important to spend a few minutes around this. Appreciate you taking time to, to join us today. <laughs> All right, my pleasure. All right. take care. Thanks. Once again, thank you for joining us on Bank Talk today. For those of you who are in the technology section of your bank or credit union, we've got a pretty interesting topic coming up. We've got a research study that we did on whether banks and credit unions are live in the right core. I expect that within the next two or three episodes, we should have that one out. To me, it's pretty interesting because uh, there are some studies done you know, basically stating that you might not be on the right core and what does that mean to you. Hopefully, we can get that out fairly quickly. We've got a little bit of research to finish up on it. We'll look forward to it in a future episode. So that's all for Bank Talk. This is Charlie Kelly, your host. Have a good day and keep on learning. Thank you for listening to the Bank Talk Podcast brought to you by Remedy Consulting. You are welcome to reach out at banktalkpodcast.com. Thanks again, and we will see you in the next episode.